The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 10, 30, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. The uh, tech world was abuzz recently with a new technology that a group has discovered, they believe. And they have crafted a new type of metal that they treat it in a certain way, they etch in it a certain way, and they um, compact layers of it in a certain way that, it, that within the metal, it traps air. And so the way that it's constructed, when you push it down into, into the water, it continually comes back to the surface. And it's incredible because you can actually puncture it, you can drill holes into it, you can damage it, but the certain way that it traps air in it, it makes it so it always uh, floats. It won't sink. And so now there's a lot of resources that are going behind this new technology to see what it could be used for because people's imaginations are, are going crazy as to what this could be used for if they found a metal that won't sink. They've talked about it could be, um, they could build floating cities where the base is this um, metal and these self-sustained cities that are then floating. They've talked about building ships out of this kind of metal and then some of them have said this, with this metal, we could build an unsinkable ship. Now what's interesting about that phrase is for about a hundred years, almost nobody has been brave enough to utter that phrase. Because the last time that phrase was popularized about a ship that they had constructed that they thought was unsinkable, the Titanic, it promptly sunk on its maiden voyage collided with an iceberg and went to the bottom of the ocean. Now here's the thing about the Titanic. The reason they thought it was unsinkable is because they took the basic construction of a ship and they added some technology to it. They just added some pieces. Specifically, they built into it these compartments that if it got ruptured or punctured, it could fill with water, but there were enough compartments that as long as they remained airtight, it wouldn't sink. The problem with the Titanic is just enough of those compartments were ruptured that it started pulling the front of the ship down, filling the rest of the compartments, and it pulled the entire ship down to the bottom. They took the Titanic, a basic ship, added some technology, and thought it was unsinkable. But if what they found with this new technology of unsinkable metal, if they used that with a ship on a ship, that's actually something different altogether. That's not just adding something to the existing ship. That would be remaking the whole concept of a boat or a ship. It'd be a new shape, new structure, new materials. And that might be something different because it's a different thing. To make something unsinkable, it's not just adding some components to it. It's a, complete, a completely different thing, a completely new idea. It's a completely new shape. It's a total recreation. It's total transformation about the idea of a ship. And if you have total transformation, you might be able to find something that's unsinkable. So we've been talking about in this series how our lives so often are like a ship navigating around icebergs. 
and that so often with our life, we're trying to dodge one crisis after the next. And we're trying not to collide with something that's going to cause us to go down to the bottom. And we're in search of how do we build a life that's unsinkable, regardless of what life throws at us. Now, our instincts are typically to just, when we come into danger or we think we're about to collide with something or we have collided with something, when something in our life gets stressful, gets difficult, gets painful, our instinct is, what can I add into my life to help me? And so sometimes we are facing anxiety and we say, you know what, I need some new techniques about how to unwind or I need a new hobby or I need some new ways to, some new health uh, initiatives to help me unwind from the stress. I, I try and find something to add in. Or maybe my life just seems kind of boring and aimless and I'm like, you know what I need? I need to add in a relationship or I need to invest in friendships or find a new uh, romantic relationship. And so we add that piece in. And those things are not necessarily bad. And there actually might be some benefit, but it's not going to make us completely unsinkable. Or often what happens is we come to a new shift in a stage of life, or we come through a difficult season that we don't have answers to, and what we think we want to add in is pieces of religion. So maybe we have a stage of life, you know, we grew up going to church, we kind of stopped when we were young adults, and then maybe... We have kids and we're like, you know what? I I grew up with religion in my life and I want my kids to be well-rounded. Let's add in religion into their life. I just want that to be a piece. Or you know what? I'm at a place right now where I don't have answers and so what I need is I need to add in a little more prayer. Or you know what? I'm going through a hard time. I feel like my life's a mess and so I need to add in some church going. I just need that shot in the arm. And usually I'm good, but in this season I need a little bit more church in my life. And we add those pieces in. And by the way, those are all great. I recommend all of those things. But to have a life that's truly unsinkable, what the Bible says is don't just add on. Find complete and total transformation. Now, there might be something inside of you when I say that, that you could be something completely new. There might be something inside of you that's like, you know what, I really long for that, to be recreated into something new, just a fresh start. Here's the the good news for you, whether you're here or you're watching online or watching at our pilot campus, here's the good news. What the Bible is offering as far as transformation, that can be ignited today. You don't have to wait for a long process. You can launch that today in your life. I want to show you the encounter of someone who was unexpectedly, he found total transformation by this one encounter in his life. I want to look at the um, passage in the Bible, John chapter 3. If you have a Bible or Bible app, open up to John chapter 3. We're going to look at verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, let's just get our bearings here. Let's pause for a second. 
a man named Nicodemus is coming to meet with Jesus. This happens all the time. People are approaching and coming after Jesus. And, um, you know, people talk to him all day as he's traveling around. He's a teacher. And, and uh, people are asking him questions. This is a unique situation for a couple reasons. For starters, Nicodemus is a Pharisee. Not just a Pharisee, but a ruler. So he is one of the main guys. And if the term Pharisee is a new term for you, here's what this term means. He is part of the religious elite. The Pharisees were like, of all the religious people in this area, the Pharisees were the most religious. They would look at the, look through the Old Testament and, and they would look at every single rule and law and they would spend their lives following every single detail and teaching other people how to follow every single detail. So it would affect even where they walked, it would affect who they eat with, who they would talk to, what they would eat, how they would dress. They knew every single rule. And basically, their life was built on the principle of, I am going to do everything I can to be perfectly righteous. I want my life to be perfect. I want my life to be good. I'm going to do everything that can be done to get God's stamp of approval. I want God's acceptance. I want to make sure that I get to heaven. I'm going to do every single thing that I can do to achieve that. But here's the interesting thing. John highlights this detail of what time of day Nicodemus came to see Jesus. Now, this, again, Jesus was very accessible to people. You didn't have to set an appointment. But John recalls and preserves the detail of what time of day Nicodemus came to meet with Jesus. When was it? It was at night. Why is Nicodemus, this Pharisee, coming at night? Because the group that he was a part of, the Pharisees, they were jealous and threatened by Jesus. They hated Jesus. They were eventually part of the group that um, conspired to get Jesus killed. And so he had to come at night because he did not want to appear any less holy. He had to come secretly when no one could see him. See, part of the way that he felt like he was godly, that he was good, that he was good enough, that he was righteous, is by what other people thought of him. So he comes in the darkness. But here's the thing that John does. John is an eyewitness of Jesus, of this ministry, Jesus' ministry. And so a lot of these details he's preserving, not just because they're historic, but because there is a, a symbolic meaning as well. And I think the sim symbolism here is the fact that Jesus will later refer to himself as the light of the world. He's the light. And here's this ruler of the Pharisees who gets every detail as best he can right with all the rules and commandments and laws. And yet this man is in the dark. Now Jesus is going to answer a question that Nicodemus doesn't have the guts to come right out and ask. And so you're going to watch. I love how Jesus treats this guy. Jesus goes right into the question he knows he has. The man's life is built on, I'm going to do everything I can to earn heaven. And so Jesus is going to tell him exactly what it takes to be good enough to get to heaven. Look at what he says. Let's pick it up in verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? 
Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of, hev of heaven. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Je let's pause there. Jesus says, if you want to get to heaven, if you want to see the kingdom of heaven, you have to be born again. Have you ever heard the phrase before, born again Christian? You ever heard that phrase? Regardless of where you heard that or what uh, you've associated with that, this is who said it first. Jesus used that term and used that metaphor. He said, if you want to get, heaven, you get to heaven, you have to be born again. Now let's talk about this metaphor for a second. I think we can all agree being born is one of the most significant events in your life. Can we agree with that? We celebrate it every year, okay? So it's one of the most significant moments of your life. Um, I think we can all agree at that. Okay, at the same time, even though, I mean, it's like top handful of moments in your life being born, despite that fact of how significant it is, there are few significant moments in your life that you contributed less to. Being born is a very passive situation for the baby, okay? Are, are you with me here, okay? As, as, an, as a, a baby... You are like safe in your mother's womb one moment, and then the next moment there's like bright lights which you've never seen before, people are swatting you, you're crying, they're poking and prodding you, okay? We'll just skip the part in the middle, you know, makes me queasy to even think about it, all right? But on the other end of it, you're born, and you didn't do a whole lot in that process, you didn't contribute too much to the labor of you being born. It's something really that kind of happened to you. Right? Jesus picks this metaphor for a couple reasons. One of the reasons is here's this guy who spent all of his life trying to do enough to get to heaven. That's the number one question, even if he doesn't realize that he's coming to Jesus with. What do I have to really do? Am I doing enough? And Jesus says, if you want to get to heaven, you have to be reborn. He describes something that happens to you, not something you do. But look at how entrenched Nicodemus is to his paradigm. He says, how am I supposed to do that? Am I supposed to climb back into my mom and be reborn? I can't do that. He can't get it out of his brain that it, it's, he's thinking about something that he has to do. He can't get that paradigm out of his brain. Why? Because the, the system that he's operating under is the foundation system underneath pretty much all religion. I've heard it described like this. Maybe you've heard this, this illustration of religion before. Imagine a mountain. At the very top of the mountain is where God is. And so up there is, maybe it's, you call it heaven. Some religions call it paradise. Some may call it nirvana. You know, whatever that is, that's what you're trying to get to. And so a religion has a different path you have to climb up to ascend the mountain. You're trying to get up to God. And so maybe one religion on this side of the mountain says, here are the commandments you have to follow. 
Maybe this side of the mountain says, here are the good deeds you have to do. This side of the mountain says, here are the key things that you have to commit to or you have to achieve or here are the things you have to do at certain life stages. So when you're born, you have to do this and this age, you have to do this and this age and when you die, you have to do this and here are the things at different life stages or, or maybe there's a whole nother system that seems to be kind of irreligious but it's still religion. Well, as long as I'm a good person and I don't like do anything really bad like rob a bank, I'll make it up the mountain. I just have to be a basically good person. And so what people say is all religion is basically the same. It's describing different paths up the same mountain to get to God. You're just trying to ascend up to heaven. You're trying to ascend up the mountain. And they say in that sense, all religion is the same. And you know what? I think that's right. In that sense, all religion is the same. But Jesus is going to challenge that understanding. And I'm glad he does. Because that religious paradigm of trying to climb up the mountain can be really arduous, taxing, exhausting, demoralizing. I remember when I was a kid, um, we got the opportunity to go to the Grand Canyon. And so there, um, you know, just as a, we were there as a family when I was little, and when, and you know, everything that I had heard people say, like you can see pictures, you can see videos, but standing there at the Grand Canyon is just unbelievable. I mean, it's just glorious. It's gigantic. It's just breathtaking. Um, it, it's brilliant. I mean, it's just the whole thing is an overwhelming experience. And there was a path um, nearby that you could walk down, did like zigzags, and you could go all the way down into the Grand Canyon. And so we're like, hey, let's just kind of like walk down that. So we started walking down the path. It seemed like an easy enough path, you know, going down. And we knew that, you know, as far as you go down, you got to go back up. So we were not planning on like, you know, going all the way down. But we started going down the path. And without, I mean, it seemed like we had just made like three or four turns. And we come to the sign and it was a warning. It said, do not go any further unless you have a day's worth of water. And we're like, that seems a little overdramatic, Okay. We've only been on this path like 10 minutes. I mean, just relax, Mr. Sign. Okay, we can handle it. And so I, I will just go a little further. So we round the bend and um, we, you know, we take another like 20 steps. We're about to go around the other bend and this woman is coming back up. And she is talking to everyone she passes by. And I got to describe this woman to you. I mean, she looked like she was pale. She was just drenched with sweat. I mean, she was like a zombie walking up the mountain, exhausted, and she was pleading and begging with everyone she walked by, please, don't go any further. It's not worth it unless you have water. Please, stop now. Turn back, okay? And we looked at the woman, and we simultaneously all had the same thought. I think I've seen enough of the Grand Canyon. Let's head on back up, okay? And went right back up. And here was the crazy thing. For this woman, what had been this glorious moment of seeing the Grand Canyon had turned into pure torture as she's arduously climbing back up the path. I think for so many people, and I think eventually for everyone, trying to climb up that mountain for God, the path that religion lays out, can feel a lot like that. Have I done enough? 
look, I did all this. I'm trying to get closer to God. I want to experience his blessings. And then I'm not, I'm not getting the blessings I thought. So have I not done enough? And now I feel guilt. And now I feel shame. And, and I was doing well. And now I slid backwards. And I'm up and back down. And, and there's always something more I need to be doing. Is I'm, it's never enough. And it's exhausting. And so all of my obedience is just this painful chore, this exhaustion, demoralization. And Jesus is challenging that whole framework. Look what he says. Let's pick it up in verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Watch this. No one has ascended into heaven except he who, what's that word? descended from heaven the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Here's what he says. He says, no one can ascend up to heaven. He's saying, in fact, what I'm here to say, Jesus is saying, is God's got a completely different paradigm. We need someone to descend down, the Son of Man. Now, remember, Jesus is talking to someone who spends his life studying the Old Testament. The Son of Man is one of the titles in the Old Testament for the Messiah. He says the Son of Man has to come down, descend from heaven, because no one can fully ascend there on their own. The Son of Man has to descend well, what is the Son of Man? What is this Messiah? What is this Christ? What is this one from God going to do? And then Jesus uses this story from the Old Testament that Nicodemus, it may seem obscure to us, but Nicodemus would have known this story well. It's out of the book of Numbers, which I know all of us were probably reading earlier this week, uh, the book of Numbers. I mean, who doesn't love some good reading in the book of Numbers? And uh, this story is in there. It's the story of when God's people were wandering around in the wilderness. And there's this one episode where many of them get bitten by venomous snakes. And so they're becoming sick. Some of them are dying. And so God wants to work a special miracle to make a point. He tells Moses to carve a staff and to carve a snake around it. And to put it up in the middle of the camp. And anyone who looks up to the snake that they raised up will be saved and healed from the snake bite. So all the people that have been bitten by the snake, all they have to do is have enough faith that this thing that they've raised up will work to look up to it. So if you were one of those people and you said, no, that's ridiculous, and you don't look, up, look to the snake... Hoping you'll be healed, it wouldn't work. But those who did look up to the snake expecting God to spare them, the miracle happened in their life. Now you say, that is a really, really weird story. Well, actually, that um, staff with the snake coiled around is actually a modern symbol that you have seen all the time. Go ahead and pull up that, that symbol. 
Um, it's a symbol universally for medicine, world, used worldwide. And as I'm sure all of you know, that um, staff with the snake around it is referred to as the rod of Asclepius. You all knew that, right? I mean, I'm sure that's common knowledge. I had to look it up and practice that pronunciation about a dozen times earlier this week. But that um, symbol actually comes from Greek mythology, a story very similar to that in the Bible. And actually, um, some researchers have suggested that at that time period, there as a time period before this mythology had developed in ancient Greece, there was trade happening in ancient Israel, specifically with one of the tribes, the tribes of uh, the tribe of Dan, and the Danites were trading with the Greeks, and because of that, there's a couple details in Greek mythology that trace back to the very ancient history of Israel as contained in the Old Testament, and so they believe that that symbol actually, which is coming from the Greeks, they learned from Israel. And so um, it's possible every time, every time you see that symbol, you're, you're seeing a reference to this Old Testament story. And that Old Testament story is in reference to what the Messiah would one day do. He would be raised up in the midst of spiritually sick people. And anyone who just had enough faith to look to him to be saved would be saved. Jesus pulls all this together in the next words he's about to speak. And these next words are the most famous words in the entire Bible. I want you to hear what Jesus says. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that, he, that the world might be saved through him. Here is the point of what Jesus is saying. There's a different paradigm. He didn't send the Messiah to condemn the world. The Messiah didn't come with more rules that just condemn the fact that we can't fulfill all of them. No, he's sent by God. And by the way, who is the Messiah? The Messiah is the Son, according to these verses. The Son of God himself who came to rescue those who could not rescue themselves. He's eroding the whole framework of religion itself. Religion says, I am going to find a way to save myself. And Jesus is saying, no, we cannot save ourselves. We need a rescue. What is he saving us from? saying, saving us from death that we might not perish. What does that mean? I was recently talking to my, my son. He's, he's four. And this kind of came up in, in conversation. We're talking about Jesus and, and, and doing sins and things like that. And so I, I took the opportunity and I took three blank pieces of paper. And I put one in front of him. I put one in front of me. And I put one to the side. And I said, you know, buddy, what's a What's a sin? And he says, well, it's, it's doing bad things. I said, yeah. I said, you know, um, it's exactly right. Anytime we do something in our heart or in our mind, say something, do something that is wrong, that's a, that's a sin. Uh, that's something that 
God doesn't want us to do. And I said, so here, let's do this, this little activity. I handed him a Sharpie and I, and I said to him, hey buddy, I want you on your paper. Let, let's say that this is you and, and this is me and this is a blank piece of paper. It's like it's got no sins on it. And I said, I want you to mark down every, one dot for every time you've been unkind to your sister. He goes, all right. Here we go. And he starts dotting all over little dots. And we talked about other things, you know, like maybe a moment where he didn't listen well to his teacher and he put some dots on. And I said, now look, buddy, this is my paper. And I said, honestly, buddy, if I tried to put all of my sin on this paper, there is no way I could do it. I mean, it'd be way more marked up than, than yours is. But I want to show you one thing, buddy. I'm just going to put one sin here on this paper. And I, I said to him, buddy, um, on this paper is just one sin. I said, buddy, if there was just one and everything else is blank, but just one time I did a sin, I said, that would be enough to keep me out of heaven. That's enough for me to deserve God's punishment. Now, he's, he's four, so I didn't go into that much more detail on that subject, but here's what I would say. The, the logic of it that the Bible says makes sense. Because every sin is against God, so every sin is against an infinite being. And so it makes sense that justice then is an infinite punishment. And I said, buddy, here, here's our, our papers. I said, you know, my, mine would be way more marked up, but I said, buddy, like, we have done enough to not deserve heaven. We need to be saved. And so here's what Jesus did, buddy. I said, did Jesus do any sins? He said, no. I said, you're right, man. There's no, Jesus has done, did no sins. He was the only person that was perfect before God because he was, he was God in the flesh. So what Jesus did is, is he takes our sin on himself and pays for it on the cross, dies on the cross. He's lifted up on a cross, pays for our sins before God, and rose again from the dead. And by doing that, he's giving us his perfect record. He's washed us clean. It's only because of the work of Jesus that we're saved. Here's what Jesus is saying. There is two paradigms that the world operates. One is pretty much every single religion. And one is something unique that Jesus said. Over here is religion, and it's the system that I will do whatever I can to hope I've been good enough to get to heaven. And I strive, and I crawl, and I claw, and I do whatever I can to grasp my way up the mountain and hope I was good enough. And if what the Bible says, if what Jesus says is, hey, here's a few more things that you're not doing, or here's a better way to do that, that is not good news. That is just more weights on our, on our back. And really, if that was the way to get to heaven, why did Jesus have to die? We could get to heaven on our own. And Jesus is saying he is fundamentally undermining the whole system of religion. He's saying you cannot make it up the mountain. So he turns the whole thing on its head. He says, God, you can't make it up to God. God has to descend and come down to you. And so the Son of God, Jesus, came to earth to pay for our sins because we could not earn it ourselves. We had to be rescued. It's just 
Jesus that saves us. Here's how one author put it. He said it like this regarding religion. Uh, His name is Tim Keller. And he says, here's how he describes the difference between religion and what Jesus taught in the gospel. He says this, religion operates on the principle of I obey, therefore I am accepted by God. The basic operating principle of the gospel is I am accepted by God through the work of Jesus Christ. Therefore, I obey. One says, if I just obey a little more, I'll get the blessings of God. If I do a little bit more good, then I'll, make, I'll know that I have heaven. If I do a little more good, then maybe he'll answer my prayers. My obedience equals God's acceptance. But Jesus taught his, the gospel, which means the good news is that God, the Son of God, came down and descended down to us. He met us right where we were at as sinners, paid for our sin. And it's out of the fact that he gives us his acceptance that we don't deserve, that out of that flows our joyous obedience. And when we embrace the the unique paradigm of Jesus, the gospel. It's completely transforming. It's completely, it's like we are born again. In fact, here's how another passage puts it. This is 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. See, the gospel is not just adding a little bit more of religion in your life. The gospel is God saying, I want to make you brand new. I want you to be born again into a new life. I want you to be a brand new creation. The gospel makes us unsinkable. You say, how does, that, how does he do that? I want to briefly give you these three things. Here's how the gospel makes us unsinkable. The first is this. Because the love of God is unmovable, we are untouchable. Because the love of God is unmovable, we are untouchable. Here's what that means. If you've put your faith in Jesus, if you've embraced the gospel, it unleashes God's love. See, religion operates under the principles, the more obedient I am, the more love of God that I have. But the gospel says something completely different. He has accepted us as we are and he is in the process of transforming us. He has saved us while we are in sin. And he's bringing us out of that sin. But his grace and his mercy and his love is unmovable, unchangeable. And so here's what that means. That means my circumstances are based on his love. My circumstances I cannot control by my obedience and my holiness and my godliness and my goodness like religion says. But the gospel says my circumstances are based on the unmovable love of God. So that means no matter what I face, he is working it together for my good. Here's the second thing. Because the reign of Jesus is undeniable, we are unconquerable. If Jesus can die on the cross and rise from the dead, he's not just overthrowing his enemies that tried to put him to death. He is defeating sin and death itself. He is rightfully the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the name above every name, the one to whom is given the authority of all heaven and earth. He is the King of the universe. 
And if we are in Christ and understand the gospel, we are in him. So if he is for you, who could be against you? Any of your enemies in your life, anything they can successfully accomplish against you is only playing into the hands of your king. Because you, because of his reign, is undeniable. You are unconquerable. And here's the last one. Because the reality of heaven is unquestionable, we are unshakable. Because if I believe in religion, then I'm constantly wondering if I did enough to get to heaven. Heaven's a big question mark. But when I know that heaven is based on what Jesus did, it's sealed, it's guaranteed, it is a reality, it is unquestionable. I will be in heaven because of the work of Jesus. And because of that certainty, circumstances don't shake me. Because I don't have to try and make this heaven. I have, this is just barely the beginning, I have eternity waiting for me. Christian, are you living in light of the reality of the gospel? Are you living in light of the fact that he has made you into a brand new creation? Or are you still dabbling with your own old way of life? He has made you something new. You are born again. He has recreated you. The creator recreated you into something new because of the work of the gospel. But you know, this idea of religion and the gospel is a source of a lot of confusion in our culture. Let me just read you, just as we close, one statistic about South Florida. 62% of South Florida, this may surprise you, 62% of the citizens of South Florida say that they have a personal commitment to Jesus Christ. 62% of South Florida, a majority of South Florida says they have a commitment to Jesus Christ. But here's the confusion. Also 62%, a majority, indicated they agreed to the statement that good works result in heaven. Do you see the confusion? There is a huge section of our region, and I believe there are many that are here today, watching online today, sitting at the pilot campus today, that would say, oh, I'm a Christian. I've been a Christian all my life. I grew up as a Christian. My parents are Christians. I went to church. I did the things that Christians do. Yeah, I'll, I'll get to heaven because I'm a Christian. Or I, I'll get to heaven because I do Christian things. And what's happened is they've completely missed the actual message of Christ. And they've turned Christianity into just another religion of achieving heaven. And when pushed, they would say, I will get to heaven because I'm a Christian. Not because of the work Jesus did on the cross to save me. It's what he did, not what I do. There may be some here that you have been a Christian all your life and you've missed that it's not about doing Christian things. And you've lived with the up and down 
of trying to earn his approval. Prove your godliness. Prove your worth. Prove your value. Prove your holiness. By doing a little bit more godliness, a little bit more godliness, a little bit more godliness. And you've turned the teachings of Jesus into a religion instead of what it really is. Something profoundly different. We don't ascend to God. God descended down to us to save us. So this today is a call to many of you Christians that actually need to be saved for the first time today by the work of Christ, not your Christian works. You say, man, what would people think? I mean, I mean I've, maybe you say, I've been to church a long time. I'm a leader in the church. What would people think if I now just now got saved? You know, that's the same question Nicodemus asked when he came to Jesus. What would people think? Because coming to Jesus takes humility. It's admitting that I need to be rescued. Please take that step of humility today. Can we have a, a moment of decision? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Let's just take this moment of prayer. And maybe if you're um, at the pilot campus or watching online, would you bow your heads in prayer? And I want to give you a moment. Today, do you want to ignite transformation. Maybe you've said, I've been a Christian all my life, but it's been a drudgery like climbing up a hill. But today I realize it's not about what I do. It's about what Jesus has done. And I'm going to embrace the true good news, the gospel for the first time today. Regardless of what anyone else thinks, I know I need to put my faith in Jesus, not my faith in me being a good Christian. Put your faith in Jesus today. If that's you, I want you to do a bold thing before the Lord with no one looking around. If you say, I want to put my faith in Jesus for the first time today, what I want you to do right now is slip your hand in the air and put it back down. Praise the Lord. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Anyone else say, that's me? With no one looking around, their eyes are closed. You say, like, I want to take that step and put my faith in Jesus. I'm turning from religion. I'm turning from the gospel. Jesus saves me. If that's you, just slip your hand in the air and put it back down. Amen. Praise God. For those of you who indicated that, let me lead you in a simple prayer. Just silently make this your prayer to God. Say, Jesus, thank you for saving me. I know I can't do it, but you have saved me completely. It's only you. You have sealed heaven for me. And in light of that, I'll live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.